0: like to turn with me to John chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. This is the very word of God.
1: Thank you, Father, for your word. We worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. I told you all last time that I preached um, that the topic of my sermon came from my own personal worship time, and today is no different. Um, so I told Ben and Jod that I was going to try to tackle preaching the Trinity while they were gone, and uh, that got a good laugh um, and uh, from all three of us. Then I started wrestling with the fact, how am I going to explain all there is to about the Trinity Um, in this sermon because that was really what was on my heart and I decided to open with kind of a a comedy cold open Um, but so what we're going to do is we're going to watch a clip really quickly from Lutheran satire because that's going to help us dispel a lot of really bad analogies about the trinity.
2: Tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like, uh, water, and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, and ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D., and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like, uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Moralism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that,
1: Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush. Why didn't you just say that, Patrick? All right. So, um, before we dive in too deep into that discourse. Um, I want to kind of point out how we got to where we're going to go this morning um, for my personal worship time. So for the last year or so, there has been an emphasis in our preaching on our union with Christ as a theme in all of the uh, different books that we've taught through. And even more recently, Ben even preached a three-part series on the union with the God, the Father, union with the Son, and union with the Holy Spirit as kind of a summary to that year's end of teaching. Um, That has been very formative to me, um, and I hope to our church as well as we recognize our union with God. However, there's something that just didn't quite click in my mind or in my heart over a year's worth of teaching— and um, I could state that I believed that I was united with Christ. We all say that when we experience our baptism, um, but there's, there, there seemed to be this disconnect of what that really meant and how uh, I was struggling with what that means in my day-to-day life. And then a couple of weeks ago, I heard some teaching from Dr. Adam Mears, who was a long-time youth minister. Um, He has written books. He's an author. He's currently the uh, teacher of theology at the Academy of Classical Christian Studies, happens to be Breyer's uh, favorite teacher. Um, But he was giving a talk on what I thought purely was supposed to be about sex and screen time and how to talk to our kids about that. But when I showed up to listen, he really caught me way, way off guard. Uh, because instead of just diving into that topic, his first line was, um, as with all things, we should start with a Trinitarian view. The view that we are in union with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I was like, where is that going in relationship to that topic? And then he, he pointed us to the Upper Room Discourse, which we just read the majority of um, with Jared And he spent a large portion of his time emphasizing our unity with a triune God being fundamental to our approach, not only with speaking to our kids about this topic, but with regards to all matters of our hearts and their hearts. And that made something make sense to me. And so it is my hope this morning that from our text here in John 14, And sneaking into 15 and 16, that we can, one, see and accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Two, that I can summarize the importance of our union with God as the Trinity. And then third, that this truth and reality will lead us to a lifetime of obedience. And I'm going to phrase that as a reordering of our loves. So uh, accept the doctrine of the Trinity, um, summarize our importance of union with the Trinity, and then we will see how that truth should form our reality and our identity and drive us to obedience. So the first, the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you, uh, guys, for dispelling all of the bad analogies. Um, uh, On the doctrine of the Trinity, it would take way, way more than a sermon or a three-minute clip. Sorry, they didn't say that up front. Um, but um, to to allow us to see what the Trinity is and, and to believe what the Trinity is. I mean, there have been conferences, there have been councils, there have been books written, creeds written to uh, help us ex- understand the Trinity. Um, and me being able to effectively explain that in 35 minutes is ridiculous. Um, it can only be only truly be accepted by faith, as uh, St. Patrick just told us. So um, I want us to use the Athanasian Creed that he quoted um, to give us uh, a starting point um, to, to understand the Trinity a little bit. So disclaimer, we are a creedal church. So if you are visiting our church, what that means is we... We recite a creed every week. We recite the Apostles' Creed. If you go to our website and look at what we believe, we're going to use the Apostles' Creed to uh, and the Nicene Creed to explain, to lay out the doctrine that we believe as a church. Now, the Athanasian Creed is not there, uh, largely because it is so long, but it does give us really, really good wording this morning to to show the evidence of the Trinity. So as we move into this, Um, I'm going to start by uh, reading through the first part of the Creed, and then I'm going to jump from the Creed to the text, from the Creed to the text, and kind of get a grasp on what the Trinity is. So the Athanasian Creed begins, Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that they hold the Catholic faith. Now, uh, for those of you that may not be familiar with the Creed, even this morning we said that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that C on, on the text up there was a small C. That is the, the church universal. And that's what this means is that if we're going to be believers, there are a set of things that we need to believe in order to be saved. And one of those is the deity of Christ in the Trinity of God. And so that is the reference that's here. All right. Um, but we are very much Protestant, creedal Protestants. We're not Roman Catholic. It goes on to say that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost." Okay, so, but as beneficial as creeds are, we should not take our faith from creeds, we should take it from the Word of God. So, I'm going to, this morning, very quickly jump from verse to verse to verse throughout our text to, to show proofs that of of what the creed is stating. And so, it might be uh, a little bit fast for you to, to be flipping, but if you can, stay up. If, if, if not, you may just listen, Um Verse seven says, if you had known me, you would know my father also. Verse eight, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Verse 10, I am the father and the father is in me. Verse 11, I am in the father and the father is in me. What we see here is Jesus's union with the father in all of those verses. Verse 16, and I will ask the father and the father will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus uses this term, another helper here. Jesus is equating himself with the Holy Spirit, not equating as in the same identity, but the fact that he had come as a helper for people to understand God and see a picture of who God is, and he's going to send another helper. But the helper, if we go on to verse 26, but if... The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. If we jump to 1526, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now, previously, in one verse before that I had read to you, Jesus said the Father would send the Spirit, Here, Jesus is sending the Spirit, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. So we see Jesus' union with the Father and the Holy Spirit's union with the Father as the Spirit proceeds from the Father, and Jesus and the Father are sending the Spirit. 16, 5, and 7 say this, But now I'm going to him who sent me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but I, but if I go, I will send him to you. Again, we see the unity of Jesus and the Father sending the helper that proceeds from them. Now, we can see Jesus describe one person, the Father. We can see Jesus describe one person, the Spirit, as well as his unity with both in this passage. He is in the Father, and he will return to the disciples in the Spirit. As the Creed says, But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one. Verse 10. We're going to jump back to 10 again. Verse 10. Jesus says that he speaks not in his own authority, but that of the Father. Verse 28. He says... The Father is greater than he. And verse 12, Jesus says that those who believe in him will do greater works than his own. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. Um, But for now, just we're going to say that these works that are being done are in the spirit. Um, And then further on in chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus declares, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own authority but whoever he hears he will he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come and he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to all to you all that the father uh, what the father has is mine therefore i said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you in these verses jesus is describing how each Of the Godhead works or speaks from the authority of the other. And that bestows honor on the other. So, as the Creed says, the glory equal, the majesty co eternal, the work of each is to the glory of all, because such is the Father, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. Got it? Okay. (laughs) All of this to say, the Trinity is a mystery. It's a mystery that cannot be fully comprehended by the human mind, by our reason, but understood only by faith. Okay. Trinity, done. Everybody get it? I'll post the notes so that you can read through all of that again, um, but uh, we're going to have to move on. We're going to move on that by faith that the Spirit will allow us to understand that because uh, once we see the Trinity, we need to see how we are united to the Trinity, which is point two, okay? Okay. Flip and scroll quickly as I run through a bunch of verses again. Verse 16 And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Verse 19 through 21 Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who loves me, Will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. Oh, sorry, we just did that one. Um uh, 1514, uh, or 15:4. Uh, This is a really well-known vine and branch passage. Um, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Previously, Jesus had specifically and directly said that he was the branch and the believer is the vine, so unity. But when the helper, uh, 1526, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Okay, now, because we have just spent a year um, preaching on unity with Christ, Ben did that three-part series. If you're you're wrestling with the fact or if you don't believe the fact that we have unity with each of the uh, persons of the Godhead, I suggest you go back and listen to those. They were excellent sermons. Um, But for now, um, we need to just emphasize what the creed says such as is the Father, such as the Son, such as the Holy Spirit. Jesus was in the Father, and the Father was in the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and as such, we have unity with the Trinity. Now, as mysterious... And difficult to understand, it might be, that we have union with the God. There's one thing that's really, really clear about all of this passage. Something, Jesus says it over and over and over through chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. And it can't be missed. And that is that in this unity with the Trinity, that God changes who we are. We are no longer ourselves. Before we come to faith, we are condemned individuals. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit, we are united with God, and that changes who we are. Now, just as it was said um, in the video shortly ago. Um, God is not merely the sum of three different persons. That's partialism. Our identity, our reality, is not the sum of our roles. So we're not just a boss or an employee. We are not just uh, parents or children. We're not our family name. Our identity, our reality, should now be centered on the fact that we are in union with Christ. Our identity should be set on the fact that we are in union with the Father, in union with the Holy Spirit. We can say we believe that we are united to them, but what does that change? changes who we are, fundamentally, who we are. Now church, if you're anything like me, you don't get it. I just said, I spent a year listening to preaching about being united to Christ, and I didn't get it. We don't get, like there's, there's, there's something about our being, our separation, the sin that we have in our lives, that we don't get that Jesus loved the Father and was perfectly obedient. It's hard for us to grasp perfect love and perfect obedience. And it's hard for us to grasp that a father would send a son to die so that whoever believed in him he could bring to the father. Jesus did that out of love for the Father, and a love for us. That's said six times throughout this passage. Jesus loves us, and as we love the Father, the Father loves us, and there is evidence of it because all of us sitting in this room from time to time or for long periods of time doubt that God loves us. We don't get that our identity, our unity in Jesus proves his love for us. But I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here because this is the last teaching that Jesus will give. This is the pinnacle of his ministry. He has spent three years with these men and he says, have you not seen it yet? They didn't get it either but Jesus loves us, the Father loves us, and it's evidence, it's very evidenced, because not only was Jesus going to the cross hours from the time that he said this, but he was doing so, so that he could send a helper to live with us. We get the emphasis of Jesus dying on the cross, but Jesus just says, like, I'm gonna send one. I'm going to send another helper and that helper is going to come and be in you. And that is the evidence of the love of what I'm about to do on the cross. And it is the evidence of the love of the father. And I've wrestled with this because like, I don't share my emotions well. My, my family tells me that all the time. Even when I'm sharing my emotions, it's usually not the emotion that it looks like I'm sharing. We, if we could just grasp that the Father has sent a helper to live within us, to seal the unity still our unity with the Trinity, then it should change who I am. It should change who all of us are. It should drive us to be something different. It should, it should first drive us to love Jesus back. And I'll be the first to confess, I don't know what that means. To love God. How in my finite Ability to express my emotion, my heart, my thoughts. Can I love God back in the way that he has just demonstrated his love for me? Well, I think that the text is pretty clear. It gives us some pretty hard stops on what that should look like. The first of which is that that love, whatever it looks like, should be driving us to obedience. And by obedience, I mean what I said before, that, that it means a lifetime of reordering the loves that we have. So as hard as it is, it is for me to show love to others, I know one thing, it's not hard for me to show love to myself. I do that all the time in the way I prioritize things. And Jesus speaks clearly to this. In fact, he says it four times in chapter 14. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by the Father. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And there are variations of this that continue Throughout the next three chapters, into chapter seventeen, hear me clearly. I am not saying that we earn God's love by our actions. Keeping His commandments do not earn the love of the Father. Keeping His commandments does not love the Father. The gain the love of the Son. Now Jesus clearly makes he makes it really clear if you look at chapter uh, 15 verse 6 he says it this way we did uh, we did not choose him but he chose us he tries to get the priority straight of where the love comes from and what it drives to we can by deduction, recognize that's true because Jesus did not earn the, the father's love by his obedience. The father already loved the son before he sent him. Just as the father already loved us before he sent the son. But out of his love for the father, Jesus was perfectly obedient in all that he said and he did. It's clear from the text That when we see and experience the love of the triune God, we should desire and seek obedience to his word. This gets really tricky. Because people are going to start saying, if you're obedient, you're legalistic. That's not what this text says. So what does obedience look like if it's out of love and not out of coercion to earn love. There are a couple of uh, specifics in these chapters and I'm gonna point, point out two that summarize kind of the whole of them. First, in chapter 15, verse 12, it says, "'This is my commandment, that you love one another "'as I have loved you.'" Love one another. He says, follow my commandments. What are his commandments? Love one another. This one summarizes a lot of things. Paul clarifies this in uh, writings to the church. If you go through and you read all of the epistles, you're gonna see lots of specifics. But the short of this is Jesus is about to die to demonstrate his love for the disciples and for us. And way too often, we can't even be a little selfless or forgiving, much less die for someone. And that's the standard that Jesus sets sets, sets, sets when he says, "Keep my commandment to love one another." So ask yourself, how do I crucify self? How do I begin to reorder the loves of my life so that I'm not the priority? Second, obedience is that Christ proclaimed everything he had heard from the Father and he sent the helper to do the same in us. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, we all know the Bible tells us we need to tell people about Jesus, right? Everybody knows that, right? Interaction, just a little bit here, please. We all know that, right? We've heard that before. We're supposed to be telling people about the gospel. But what I want you to think about is that we need to see that from a Trinitarian point of view. If we believe God has demonstrated his love for us, and we love him back in the way that we sang about earlier, why do we limit our conversations about that love primarily to other believers? I said we would look back to verse 12 earlier, um, and so we're going to do that. We're going to go back to to verse 12 to kind of wrap this up a little bit. 14.12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. this verse says that all who believe will carry on the work of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, in some wonderful way, this is often misinterpreted, but in some wonderful way, we will even do greater works than Jesus. Now, I'm certain that you're sitting there thinking about all of the miracles that Jesus had just done in the first 13 chapters of this book, right? Like, up to this point in John, he has healed people, the blind and the lame. He has walked on water. He has turned wine, water into wine. He has raised people from the dead. And Jesus says that whoever believes is going to do the same works that he did. Now, that should make us think for a moment Because this is a definitive statement. All who believe will do the works that I have done. How many of you have done any of those things in your life? None of us, right? Does that mean none of us are believers? No. Um, I think that what we need to do is we need to look at the verses uh, 11 and 12 and kind of bring the context from verse 11 into verse 12 to be able to understand What's going on here? Um, but before we do that, just as another evidence, before we move into that, I, wanna, I want to uh, read 1 Corinthians 12. I, and this points out that Jesus clearly did not have in his mind that everybody was going to do the works that he did. But in verse uh, twelve, uh, or chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says... To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for common good. One is given through the, uh, common good for the one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom to another, faith by the same spirit to another, the gift of healing by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles. Do all work miracles? He says, no. Um, do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So if we interpret scripture by scripture, we know that the New Testament church did not believe that everyone was going to do miraculous works. So what does it mean? Um, I think that if we kind of paraphrase uh, chapter, uh, verses 11 and 12, it'll help us to understand this a little bit better. In verse 11, Jesus' works are designed to help people believe. So listen to this paraphrase. If you are having a hard time believing I am who I say I am, look at my works. Let the works join with who I say I am to help you come to faith. Because that's what he, he had just said in verse 11. Bel- believe in the Father, believe also in me. And if you can't believe in me, believe in the works. So if if belief and works in verse 11, works are there to help us believe, then look back at verse 12 again. Let the function of works be the same in both verses. Another paraphrase. Let my works lead you to faith because whoever believes in me will also do works that lead people to faith. The works that Jesus did every single miracle he did was a work to point to who he was. And so now Jesus says, all who believe are going to do works to point people to believe who I am. And then he goes on to say, and they're even gonna do works greater than these. I think that that greater than these is because Jesus was proclaiming who he was and who he was, what he was about, but the crucifixion and the resurrection had not yet happened. The Spirit had not yet come. And so the works of our proclamation are greater because we now have the power of the resurrection and the receiving of the Spirit. not some spectacular demonstration of miracles. We have the benefit of proclaiming Jesus resurrected in the power of the Spirit. Look at the end of verse 12. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What did Jesus say he was going to do when he went to the Father? Not rhetorical question. What did he say? He's gonna send the helper. You're going to do greater works because you have a helper. And we don't recognize our unity with the helper. Therefore, we're not proclaiming the works of Jesus. Church, this is big. Because of our union with a triune God, we are to be about God. That's what Jesus was about. He came to manifest, to allow man to see who God is. And he sent the helper to do the same. We're... If you're in union with Christ, if you're in union with the triune God, you have to be about God. And you have to be about proclaiming his gospel message. That's the entire point of you being in unity with him. That's the entire point of the spirit coming. And I'm out of time. I'm three minutes over. Let me pray for us. Father, let your spirit allow us to see Christ by faith, because in doing so, we see you. In Christ's miracles, let us see your power and your revelation of who you are in his spotless purity of the life that he lived, let us see the holiness of God. Holy Spirit, lead us to believe the revelation of God to man in Christ. For the works of our Redeemer show forth your glory. In this passage, he says, The Father is going to be honored. The Father is going to be glorified through what I do. And He's going to glorify me. And then I get to send the Spirit so that they can believe so that they can continue the works and do greater works. Father, that's what we want. If we are in Christ, that is what I want. And I lose sight of that daily because I don't step in obedience. I lose that because I love self more than I love you. I love what other people think about me more than I love you. I care too much about what they will say or how it will affect my job, how my neighbors will think I'm crazy because I love self more than I love you. So God, let this revelation foster in us a love for the triune God and from that love, give us hearts of obedience. Hearts of obedience that would want to rearrange our loves so that we may love ourselves less, that we would love our brothers and sisters more, that we would love the lost more. Oh God, may your spirit move us to mighty works of proclaiming Christ. Allow us to proclaim him in our families, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.